there are people in this life that make a massive difference to others selflessly. And today, I'll be talking to one of those people. Roll them. Buongiorno and welcome to the My Way of Thinking podcast hosted by me, Lee Greeno, here live from the Man Cave every Monday where we speak to extraordinary individuals, individuals such as Reverend Ash Barker who's joining me today now, Reverend Ash Barker. Reverend Dr. Ash Barker is a pioneer urban activist, leadership developer, writer, minister, husband, force of nature, everything you can think of and an all-round, all-round amazing guy. This guy... It has worked selflessly all around the world in some of the harshest environments trying to help people and he is an inspiration and you'll find that out today so make sure you keep listening remember only four rules for the podcast one no bullshitting two no judging three no negativity and four have fun okay let's get started here's my great interview with the brilliant ash so welcome to my way of thinking podcast today and i have a very special guest on up the road he's only up the road it is Ash Barker, welcome Ash. Thank you for having me, Lee. Looking forward to having a chat. Yes, definitely. Us, us Midlanders. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, ain't it, how you can be in one place in the world. The world's such a smaller place now where you can end up virtually anywhere. It's, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Yes, it is. What, dra- what dragged you out of interest? What dragged you over to England? I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia, so it was yeah. definitely the weather. <laughs> well, that's a lie. <laughs> Actually, long... yeah. Go on. So, so I, I, we've been here since 2014. Oh, right. Before that, before that, I lived in a big slum community in Bangkok wow. for 14 years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, 100,000 people in a square um, mile. Uh, we lived right in the heart of that for, for, for 12 years. Um, and then, uh, you know, before that, 12 years in a, um, a pr- primarily refugee neighbourhood in Melbourne. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, you moved, moved around a lot then? Yeah, yeah. Three, three, three big moves. Yeah. Hopefully, this is my last one. <laughs> before we start, tell me something amazing about Melbourne. I have, um, I have um, interviewed a couple of people from Australia, but I don't think ever no one ever from Melbourne. Tell me something that's maybe interesting there that you maybe you miss or? <laughs> I mean, Melbourne's actually the second biggest Greek city after Athens. Yeah. And uh, so we have amazing kind of cafe culture and food. Um, it's a very multiracial, multicultural community. Where I lived in Springvale, there were 114 different languages wow. spoken at the local high school. And so, yeah, it's hyper diverse. It's a city that's kind of spread out. Hmm. I mean, uh, it is it is funny. So I'm in an old church building that was built in 1894. Wow. And Melbourne was only kind of established as a city in 1835. So, yeah. uh, so you have this kind of, um, and there was the gold rush and just peoples, of course, long before that as well. But uh it, it's uh, um yeah it, it's, uh, it's a it was a great place to grow up my dad's actually from manchester and my mum's from tayport in scotland wow um, <laughs> uh, and so they, they met there just just after the beatles actually my mum yeah. was dad's one of the beatles and uh 
and keep saying, say love me do. So if it wasn't for the Beatles, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> i tell you what, it's interesting, isn't it? And it, where, what you say about Melbourne, we forget living in, in England, we're quite, we're, we've got a lot of history here and you forget that. You forget because I'll speak to people in America and they, they've got a different kind of culture on certain things. But it's actually yeah. because they haven't got the history that we yeah. have. And, and I think that's like the sense of humour as well sometimes. We're very, you know, we really can hit sense of humour. We're very sarcastic. We can take anything on board. Whereas sometimes they can be quite touchy in certain places. And that, <laughs> it stems back to the history, doesn't it, of the country? Yeah, I mean, what I really love here is um, the, the Celtic kind of Christianity and history that goes back from five, 500, you know, 1500 years ago. Yeah. You know, I'm actually part of a, a community of Aidan and Hilda, yeah. which is a Celtic uh, Christian community. And it's fantastic. One of the things I love my emerging leaders to do is walk barefoot uh, from the mainland at uh, low tide to Holy Island. Wow. Um, and they were barefoot across the poles, uh, you know, one after the other. And uh, something, you know, sacred kind of happens where you've got 1,500 years of history of people doing the same thing. That continuity and that kind of sacred space, it's just beautiful. And, yeah, something, something I love here that um, often is just not the case in, um, in countries. It's fair to say the Indigenous cultures uh, and, and tribes and nations of Australia have very rich history, histories that go back 4,000 years. Yeah. It's yeah. just that we don't yeah. understand them and, and know what they are most of the time. Yeah, and it's like, we almost take it for granted here because we go Wales quite a lot. Um, my, my wife has relatives there. And you'll be stopping in a cottage and someone's like scratched on the wall 15, 10 or something like that. And you think, Jesus, I, I hope this, the roof's not going <laughs> to cave in on me. But it, <laughs> but it does feel amazing. You feel the bricks and you just, you feel so yeah. grounded. It's great, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, I, it's one of my favourite parts of being here. I think a lot of countries like Australia have very, um, they're always looking to the future, which is a good mm. thing. Mm. But they don't sometimes value, you know, the efforts and, of previous generations. And, uh, and you can get moved around. If you don't have roots, you know, you can quickly yeah. be pushed around. And, and, yeah, you can be a lot more insecure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, yeah, the sense of humour that I love here is you know, deep-rooted and, and a secure sense of humour by and large, isn't it? Oh, People God, yeah. It's, it's very difficult to offend people, I find, <laughs> in the UK, whereas... In other places, yeah. you, you, sometimes you've got to be a little careful. So let's, if we go back to the start, where did it all begin? Because obviously you've wanted to help people, I would guess, from a, a young age. Where did it all spur from? Because some people will say, oh, I was at school and I, I used to enjoy doing this. Some people, it's when they left college. What, 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 where did it start for you, Ash? Yeah, so I, I did grow up in a, in a Christian home. My, my folks came to faith not long after I was born, actually, I think, yeah. to cope with me. We'll say my dad was a carpenter. My mother's name was Mary. So it was a really chance <laughs> I wouldn't have a Messiah conference. Yeah. But, uh, um, but, but yeah, so, so it was those kind of church backgrounds, see, trying to, to see those in need around us, and particularly... Um, I remember Tony Kempole was an American sociologist and preacher um, speaking. And, you know, after what God's done for us in the world, 
you know, will will I sacrifice my life for others? You know, that kind of language. And and it and it kind of got to me. So I I stood up as a um uh, a 17, 18 year old willing to go anywhere, you know, to do to make a difference. Uh, little did I know that same meeting, a lady called Angie, a young woman called Angie stood up as well. We met six months later and we fell madly in love and got married as 20 year olds. She thought she was going to Haiti. I thought I was going to China. Um, <laughs> we've been married now for, yeah, was it 30 odd years? Wow. Um, and, uh, but, but it was both of us wanting to make a difference really. And then initially, uh, yeah, people said, don't go overseas. There's so much the overseas has come here. Yeah. Um, uh, and so we relocated in a very multiracial, multicultural community. We started working with youth for Christ, visiting people in prisons and helping young people come out of prisons. But we very quickly realized that young people were not coming from every neighborhood in Melbourne. They were only coming from a few. And that if you were going to break the cycle, the language we used in those days was, um, you know, there were young people falling off the cliff and we were ambulances picking up the pieces. And once yeah. we're in the system, really hard, could we build a fence at the top of the cliff to stop them yeah. falling yeah. over? So, so, so yeah, so our first uh, three years or so, um, early 20s was Youth for Christ. I trained for ministry as well. That's uh, a, so at a young, that's a young age then really, Ash, isn't it? Because when you're growing up i suppose you as you get older you get more experiences and you get more mature and a better head on your shoulders but when you're young and going straight into it and then yeah. you're trying to help other young people they'll almost look at you and say hold on you know you haven't even lived yet well how can you help me is that what happened Oh, there was a bit, bit of that. I mean, you know, as I say, there, there was a fair bit of Messiah complex in those early days. We just thought we could do anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and honestly, we 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 did. We opened our home up to people very quickly. Um, and yeah, it, it, the training was was always kind of helpful at some level. But no, our experiences very quickly with um, we you had to learn. You know, if you take people from yeah. prison into your home. If you start churches when you're 22, 23, we started our own organisation, uh, Urban Neighbours of Hope, which was a kind of missionary community uh, when I was 23, so 93. Um, and so we led that for over 20 years. So um, so we had to learn on the spot and yeah. learn very quickly. Yeah. And what other people thought of you, well, we just uh, honestly, in those early days, we didn't really care. We were just kind of out there trying to make a difference. And um, we were pretty gung-ho in those days. They have no sense of what we were doing and we would try and find it out as we went. Yeah, that's the beauty of when you're younger, isn't it? I mean, you know, you haven't got the experience, but you're also you don't care, <laughs> you know, when you're older, you're thinking, oh, what about this? And what about next year? And, but when you're younger, it's like, right, <laughs> let's, let's go for it. You know, if it don't work and I sort of, I, I enjoy getting older, but I also miss that young sort of not caring. Cause when you get a family and commitments and I'll say to my son, you know, he's 20 now and I'll say, enjoy it, enjoy having that because once you do start paying bills and having to do your own washing, it's going to hit you. <laughs> but my son just left home this week. Oh, he's, did he? How old? And, uh, 
uh, yeah, 18, and uh, he's, um, his dream was to, is to be a filmmaker, and he's really? got his first job working on a, on a film set. He's just a runner and, you know, help, you know, doing the atmosphere and all that kind of stuff. Um, wow. But, but I said to him, you know, he, I, I said to him this week, it's so good you're chasing your dreams, mate. Well, you can. He said, Dad, I'm not chasing the dreams. I'm bloody living them. <laughs> he's got this kind of, he's never lived in Australia, but he's got this Australian accent. Yeah. But, but I, I love that as 18-year-old, he's chasing after what he wants to see happen. Mm. Um, he dropped out of doing his A-levels and we were kind of a bit worried about it. But actually, you know, he, he's found what he's passionate about and going after it. And that's, um, as a parent, that's kind of what you hope. I wish he'd lived at home, but... Yeah, um, I don't. I wish my lad had leave. <laughs> 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 I keep telling him, doing me head in. <laughs> But it, I think that's um, and that's interesting what you said about um, because when I was younger, I do filmmaking as well. But obviously, I'm just I just do it as a hobby. And yeah. when I but when I left school, we were sort of poverish, and I went straight into work, earning money, great earning money. But what it did to me as a parent is now with my kids, I say to them, you go for it. And I think as we as the future you know as we get more and more modern and into the future there's a lot more of that now which is great where you can say to kids you do worry about their future but it's not the old the old um you know the old school where you'd say oh you've got to have a firm job and you've got to make sure you've got food on the table now it's like go for it go for it and enjoy it and a lot i like that for the for the younger generation yeah, and there's a lot that I go. I mean, there's a lot in our neighbourhood here in Winston Green where we live. So we're in a city, Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there are a lot of kids, young people who just are in survival mode. Mm. And so you understand why a lot of parents would want to try and get as much security as they can because they're living hand to mouth. It's a, it's a, it's a struggle every day. Um, cycles of addiction and everything else that kind of just decimates neighbourhoods like ours here. Yeah. But um, but I, I I feel like one of the privileges that I had was having a kind of stable family who mm. outward looking, and that does give you some confidence. This gives you a huge head start to um to do things you believe in and you think are important, and and to live a life that's good and meaningful is kind of um, you know, it is a privilege to do that. A lot of people are in survival mode, and mm. so I think. That's the other thing, both my kids, so I've got a daughter, she's back in Melbourne now. She works with, with young people who have schizophrenia and hear voices and stuff. And yeah. she's, um, she's a really compassionate uh, young woman um, in her 20s. And but she's really going for it as well. And I, I think part of that is you do have to have some security that this is, mm. um, I can look beyond just survival. I can look to the future. Yeah. I, can have a, I can have a bit of a hope. And... I mean, I think one of the things I, we, we work with young leaders here in, in, um, in the UK with a program called Changemaker. I think you've had Jay, Jay, James on, who was mm. part of that. Um, and part of what we try to do is help them look part, look at the, where, how far they've come in their yeah. lives and they've yeah. made it through. But also try and, you know, if you could do anything, you know, if money was not a barrier, if time was not a barrier, what would you spend your best energy resources time doing? What, what would it be? And, and to try and, you can't, click your fingers and that happen, but you can work towards it. And even it's a little bit every day, um, it's amazing what the talent and skills and assets that people have in our neighborhood here um, 
I mean, we, we, we started a football club here with West Bromwich Albion. Yeah. Um, I probably lost half of your listeners just saying <laughs> we're, oh. Cov- we're near Coventry here. <laughs> God, Blues. But because uh, there was no football club in this area anymore, even though we had huge talent pool that traditionally was used because, uh, yeah, the clubs had all folded and gone. And so West Brom helped us start um, Soho Albion. So Soho is our kind of area. And 17 of our young people have got into the academy at West Brom, um, we had a thousand kids show up for trials in the wow. first, first yeah. minute. And you just, I think what I worry about is not just football talent, but all kinds of talent here. Yeah. We've yeah. Had, people had a little bit of resource, a bit of time and energy, a bit of care to think about the future and what you want to invest your time in. It's, you know, we're, we're missing neighborhoods like ours are missing that kind of um yeah i think that's one of the, one of the biggest things that i've known i i worked for a while in a, a quite a deprived area as well and that's the biggest thing for me is when you see these youngsters that don't know any different they haven't really got any parents or the parents from prison or the and but they are so talented if they the result you know they'd be brilliant artists or singers or but it's getting that mentor in place, I suppose, and, and guiding them. Whereas in their world, they're just surviving and just, and no one's ever put their arm around them. And it's, it must be very difficult for you seeing that. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, some of our best and most talented footballers just couldn't get to training, you know, twice yeah. a week. Yeah. They just, their lives are so chaotic. And the kids who have been made have really committed parents or grandparents who, yeah. who, get them just get them to training every day and when you're young you actually do need a bit of that extra support um after a while of course the desire has to come from within you it can't come externally but the role parents and caregivers and all that that kind of stable family have for you um, makes a massive difference and so yeah so it is it is one of the hard things here i think what we try to do here so we're in an old church building that that had been derelict and we've resuscitated it for the community um uh and we've got art and music and filmmaking and yeah uh, we've got great cooks and we have a community cafe yeah and we just try to identify the gifts and talents of people and just try and release them uh any way we can and it's amazing what can happen there's an old saying you know use what's strong to yeah. fix what's wrong yeah, yeah. Um, and if you look at what's wrong in a neighbourhood like this, you'll you'll be overwhelmed. But yeah. you look at what's right, you know what's good and what's yeah. uh, what skills people have here. It's amazing. Release that. It's yeah. amazing the power of a community to to solve its own problems, mm. to become really healthy and flourishing. Yeah. What what was the big? Because you've travelled around Europe, Bangladesh, and places like that. What is the uh, big? Bangkok. Oh, Bangkok. Sorry. What? what do you feel about the uk is it is it a lot easier compared to there is it a different kind of way of working or what what's your feelings towards that yeah i mean my wife Ange was not that keen to come to england she's yeah. she loved bangkok um she's helped start lots of social enterprises worked with some of the world's kind, kind of poorest folk my role was much as always actually been much more about developing leaders so lots yeah. of what i've been doing is kind of been organizational leadership development and we started a football club there though as well um, <laughs> and just kind of thing but you really the first world problems what are we going to do with you know that the head the head dryer's not working properly or something you know? i know yeah 
but but actually we've been um, shocked by the systems that simply don't work here, yeah. whether they be educational. I mean, the prison here is a nightmare. Um, the uh, school systems collapse. The childcare stuff is just awful. Um, the, the commerce. I mean, all the basic things that uh, healthcare. It's almost impossible to get a doctor's appointment here. So. But the things that should be working for people, I mean, mm. housing is a disaster. Yeah, You've yeah. got all these houses of multiple occupancy. You've got homeless guys that are in addictions and you throw them all together with a room each in a, in a, in a small house and think that's going to work. You know, it, it, um, it, it didn't work when I was at, you know, <laughs> at, at, at Bible college being thrown in with all of yeah, those things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, sp so, I suppose. I suppose. So that's the surprise. The surprise is the systems are failing. Yeah. Majority of people are in our neighbourhood, and so that makes it difficult to. In Clontoy, the systems we didn't expect systems to work, mm. and so you work with people to sort it out. Here, it just hasn't happened. I suppose in places like Bangkok and poorer places, uh, because it's a lot less complicated. You know, they're happy to have running water. They're happy to have a flushing toilet. Um, it's almost, I suppose, well, I get, you get community over here, but I suppose it's totally different over there where it's not as complex. Whereas over here, there's a lot more complications going on for people. Whereas over there, give me running water, food, you know, and some clothes and I'll be happy. Is it a little bit like that? Yeah, there is. I, I mean, it, um, there's aspirations everywhere, isn't there? So, yeah. I mean, literally, we live in a slum in a you know house the size of four double beds, you know. But above, right above us, would be this massive billboard, you know, uh, with a um, a condo, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just a few hundred yards away was a condominium that had like a helicopter pad at the top. You know? Oh my, yeah. We had the the disparity between rich and poor was just extreme in Bangkok. But you're right, there was a sense where um, nobody expected the government to help it anyway. Mm, mm. Uh, in this country, there is laws that are, and systems that are just not working. Mm. And so to try and get those systems to work for people, um, it's really hard and complex work. Um, in Klontoy, you, you start a school, you start a hospital, you start a, um, a social enterprise. Um, we, when we started a football club, literally, I, I bought a football. I walked from my house to the community centre where we were based. I had 100 kids follow me and we started the football <laughs> yeah. club. We started a football club here. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Health and safety, insurance. Yeah. Yep, you can't stick in on the back back of the ute. You've got to have a bit of proper bus and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, so so it's just lots of red tape, mm. lots of um, you, you to get uh, decision makers to actually make decisions is really difficult. Um, but in saying that, we've been able to campaign for a new high school, which we've, we've got here now. Um, well, well, it's nine hundred student high school that's about to be built. Wow, it's been approved to be built. Um, we've been working for housing, so there's um, over 500 apartments that we built, and 54 of them will be for um, community-led housing that we're helping to do. And they were just going to do tail blocks, actually, but yeah. as a community, we kind of rallied together and helped do it. And so, you can, and this old church I'm in now, 
you know, was derelict and now it's full to the brim with all kinds of crazy ideas. My wife wants to run the, um, a roller skating ring upstairs <laughs> in, the, in the hall. We've got the permission from the, uh, from the insurers and everything else. I mean, it's nuts. But, but you know, you use what you've got. Mm. Uh, and I think that the possibilities here are, are incredible to bring about change. Um, but it's complex. The powers that are here are, are more complicated to navigate. And, I mean, honestly, in Bangkok, if you pay people enough money yeah. to the right people, you can do just about anything. Yeah, the police don't like being paid over here for things. <laughs> and what, so, I mean, on your seedbeds uh, on the website, it talks about community a lot. And that's when, when I worked in the, the, the rough areas. The, the yeah. communities, when they come together, they're a force yeah. to be reckoned with. It's just yeah. get, getting them to work together and then also you've got the added energy from the bad side of the community and if you can pull the bad side and turn it to work with the other community it's quite powerful you know they can be a real powerhouse definitely I mean, we always say that you know the best people to deal with the community problems are the people themselves who have those problems and when those people work together the best chance of change happens. It's much better than getting outside service providers and outside professionals to do things for people. What people can do for themselves is amazing. And yeah, I mean, honestly, there was a whole lot of stuff here around isolation and loneliness. Yeah. And so if you can just bring a few people together on, on one issue, um, it's amazing what can happen. And, And I think that's what's, what's happened here. Um, it has been a community that's kind of been quite isolated and high turnover of people and all that kind of stuff. But actually, if you get people together and they, they you know, they begin to have a sense of belonging together, that, that they get a few quick wins together, um, it is incredible what people can do. And yeah. I mean, honestly, we've had no money to fix this building. Like It's just yeah. been graft from the local community and local tradesmen and everything else. Wow. Um, we had a, we would, there was the church to this kind of um, uh, quinquennial, they call it. It sounds like <laughs> kind of sexual transmitted disease. But, <laughs> they do for but, um, uh, but they, they were talking millions of quid. Now we've just about got this whole place safe for uh, under 20 and it's all been 20,000 and it's all been local people Wow. Just, just grafting together to make stuff happen, and including local tradesmen who have skills, but they've kind of done it for the for next to nothing for us, and done a lot for nothing. So, um, so it's amazing what I mean. There's a kind of a, you know, an adage, you know, don't do things for people that they can do for themselves. Yeah. I mean, had someone given us a million quid and got professionals to come in to do it, I'm sure it would be great. But actually, us mm. working together. Yeah. It's the ownership of this building. People feel like it's their place and they've put blood, sweat and tears into making this place work. And that feels a whole lot different. If you walk in the room, I think the people feel, and it's used, every, it's packed to the rafters every day. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Everyone's helped out in some way, you know, and, and yeah. so there's ownership. And that, that um, you know, a million quid would have ripped people off, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, and it's true what you say, because I think, 
in in the past this government and certain councils have thought we'll put this brand new building in this deprived area and it'll be brilliant and it just ends up getting wrecked and vandalized and it's exactly what you've just said there you, that's not solving the problem solving the problem is building it for themselves i mean it goes back years you know we're in a community how they build the houses and and they take ownership so i think that you're definitely right there what how did covid affect because this is very hands-on and getting has i bet that's been really difficult for you isn't it yeah it was it was really challenging um i mean a few things happened very quickly one is uh yeah a few of us got it <laughs> yeah so uh, so, uh, so, so that happened early on. So yeah. we did have some immunity because we we got it early. So, so COVID hit us in a few diff, in different waves. Mm. Um, initially, we um, we were just based in our house, Newbigin House, is where we live. It's an old vicarage. It was only being rented out privately, and we put a proposal together, and you know we just paid for ourselves initially, and then eventually the Church of England and. Uh, um, have supported what we're doing there but um i mean you've got alpacas and all kinds of things that we walked down the street with and we've got a yurt in the front garden <laughs> um so it was it was crazy but and we were contacting hundreds of people who were coming through our house um and so when covid hit we just kind of opened up the backyard mm. uh and so lots of people were coming there and we would go and visit people with food yeah. that were isolated um uh, there are two two things kind of happened in COVID. One is we were able to get um, this building mm. and then the police basically said, look, you've, we've, we've got so many of these folks who are stuck in these HMOs. They can't really stay in the house all day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, could we send them down, um, down to you? And so we kind of got, uh, we were a designated kind of space. It's a right. big building. Yeah, that's good then. And that, um, and that, uh, yeah, uh, and so yeah, we've been helping in all kinds of ways, really. Uh, initially, with food and just advocacy and helping people who are losing their benefits and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, um, but it's kind of built and built, and uh, and so um, and so when uh, yeah, so, so now you know, I mean, really, for for most of last year and and this, we yeah. it's been full on every day. Now. Yeah. Angie's been well, Angie's very funny. You should have Angie. Um, Angie's just had a book book released actually. It's yeah, mission, missionary, not just a position. Is the name? Of the book. <laughs> That's a great title. And uh, and she works a lot with kind of sex workers here in the area. Yeah. Uh, she, oh, I bet That's colourful. <laughs> and she's been getting uh, getting them all kind of vaccinated because a lot a lot of people are anti-vaxxers, not because they don't believe in the getting vaxxed actually it's just too difficult too hard and, yeah uh, like, getting yeah or, yeah kind of so she pays them five quid That's, and they yeah. get vaccinated. wow and so, uh, and so, <laughs> so, she, so she took uh some of the ladies and you know five quid for, for you know a different kind of <laughs> only five quid for an job but you know we got, um anyway so, so uh so yeah so we've been helping all kinds of ways with police with health services um people have been in survival mode and been in survival mode a long time yeah um so having somewhere safe to come to uh somewhere that's big and open um uh ha has been really important for a lot of people and of course we've visited a lot of people during that time. yeah and and one thing that i noticed as we got back to normal is crime has in in 
certain areas is is gone off the charts which you can understand obviously young people have got together the the streets are empty you can't the police are busy or however you want to you know whatever you want to say about the policing um how have you've worked with people in prisons before you know we spoke about james what how are you finding that is that a real difficult problem because the way you talk you've got enough on your plate with that you know you're doing all this for the community and then you've got the other side of it which is the crime side of it how's that working out yeah i mean the crime side of it got really complicated for us so so we're living in a kind of community house uh, called new beacon house and we had just teenagers who were just bored going you know break yeah. you know and they were breaking into our house trying to steal stuff while we're upstairs, the rooms are upstairs and downstairs is kind of where the community kind of are, but they were breaking in, mm. stole my computer, all that kind of stuff. So a uh, car, one of our friends' cars as well. And, um, and and then you get people who are really frustrated, you know, that um, getting drunk and really um, just out of control, really, because boredom and that cycle. Um, and so, yeah, so, so crime, um, yeah, I mean, crime happens, doesn't it? When, yeah. when things are not working for you, you mm. don't commit a crime if everything's working for you. So, um, when lots of things are not working for you, you're more, you know, if your housing doesn't work, if you've not got good, meaningful things to do, if you're, uh, you know, if you've not, not got good, positive relationships in your life. Yeah. Uh, so, I see kind of see crime really as a, um, as an end product of a whole lot of things not working. Yeah. There's very few guys in prison, like the prison here at Winston Green, it's a massive prison, it's an yeah. old Victorian prison. You lock a couple of guys up in a cell to, together. But um, nearly, I mean, I think something like 80% of the guys have grown up in care, mm. care homes. Um, and a uh, huge percentage have mental health problems, huge percentage have addiction problems. And locking them up is kind of, you know, it, it's um. There was a there was a um. We used to think with addiction, for example, that it was just the drug was so good that's why people, why people take yeah. them. Yeah. Um. And, and there was there was kind of research of a rat put it in a cage and that there was heroin in one, yeah. one thing, water in the other, and the and the rat would always kill itself on the heroin. Mm. But then someone said, well. That's in a rat in a cage. It's pretty awful. What about we made rat park? You know, that mm, yeah. rat had as much sex as they wanted. They could go around, yeah. they'd get the things to do. Yeah. Had a great time, lots of food, lots of yeah. food. And you put heroin in there and you put water in there and they, they never took the heroin. Yeah. And yeah. I, it wasn't the, the drug that was the issue. It was the cage. It was the kind of living yeah. conditions that people were in. Yeah. And uh, and so it's not a surprise to me that crime goes up when people have been locked up and end up being locked up again. It's a lack of connection that kills people. Do you think the system, I mean, I've spoke to quite a few people that have been in prison in America and, and they say the lack of support is terrible over there where you come out, you're thrown in this little room with a mattress, you have to walk every day miles and miles to the job and then and then a friend of yours phones up and says, do you want to do this crime? What, you, you know, instantly you're going to do that. Do you think the support over here is is still not good enough? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the 
one of our guys here, his name is Mark, he was in prison in Winston Green. And we did a, you know, it, what he said when he got out, he got a plastic bag with his stuff in it, and it was H&B Birmingham. He had to catch a bus to his probation officer. No one wanted to sit next to you, next to him. I mean, he'd done his time. It was, there was kind of a lack of dignity. So one of his, um, we have a Change Bakers Emerging Leaders program and people pitch their idea for change at the end. And his idea for change with dignity bags, he calls them. Yeah. That when you leave prison, you get a bag with toiletry in it. You can put your stuff in it. No one knows where you've been. Yeah. When you go to probation, it's just a normal. So even basic things, you're stripped of dignity all the way through the process. And as I say, I used to work in reset, resettling people as, as a community chaplain. Mm. So I'd be in the prison, but also meet them on the day of their release, try to get them to probation, try to get them to their housing. But honestly, 90% of guys would not go to adequate housing, would not have meaningful mm. things to do, and would not have, have healthy relationships. And either one of those things means that, that you'd re-offend. But, but most of these guys, would have not not have the three and that trifecta is a killer and uh and it just happens again and again and again uh, and again. it's a shame and i bet that's heartbreaking for you when you put because the amount of work you can put in and time it can take on those yeah. individuals you know and then when it fails compared to what you're doing at the minute with the community and things like that um yeah. it must be real heartbreaking when it when it fails but i suppose all you, you can only do what you can do yeah, and that resilience is is kind of part of being based and placed in a local community. I think if all I did was the prison work, I don't know I could do that. Yeah. And I know there are chaplains who can, and I, I've got a friend of mine, Ronnie, who, who was the head of chaplaincy at Winston Green. Yeah. He's a character Glaswegian. It's very funny. A very dark sense of humour, my goodness. <laughs> uh, but just to survive. I mean, you are putting human beings in cages. Essentially, that's the solution for, for these guys that the society says. And I, I just don't think that's a good enough solution in the 21st century. It's yeah. not doing anybody any good. And, and it's like I said earlier as well, some of those people are the most talented and skillful people. It's just, yeah. giving, them, it's just giving them that direction, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Where do you see... So you've got these seedbeds uh, at the minute. Where do you see this going in the, in the future, Ash? Yeah, I'm really excited. So seed, seed beds were about growing leaders and communities in the fullness of life. Um, our biggest program has been our emerging leaders program called Changemakers. Local communities identify talented young leaders and they invite them, uh, get, they get nominated on the program, we invite them on, and they come with an idea for change. And they've started enterprises and campaigns. And uh, so Mark, you know, got the Dignity Bag project up and going. So they're solving community problems from within. And I, and I, we uh, roll that into Scotland um, next month, which I'm really wow. excited about. Um, we're also working with, um, with uh, we would run master's programs and PhD programs with the Nazarene Theological College as well. So we, we've got folks who have come from our neighbourhoods are now at, you know, researching and learning at a really high level and that's building their capacity for change as well. We're also uh, working in Burma. So Myanmar, you may know Myanmar has... Um, uh, had a coup last year in February, so just over 12 months ago. And we worked with the democratic forces there 
and uh, and they've asked whether we would do what we do for change makers, but but work with about three hundred fifty thousand refugees and internally uh -huh. displaced people um, for income generation. And so, yeah, we're building a coalition at the moment and hoping that um, in in April we'll start some of it online initially with a pilot group, and that we'll go to refugee camps in July and August, and they'll pitch their ideas for change to panels and get resources to start their businesses and campaigns and we've got media filmmakers as well and a few other others who are helping um and build a yeah um and then well yeah so there's there's lots of ideas that we kind of I, how have with. you got enough hours in the day ash <laughs> yeah it does feel like that sometimes but there are, there is something about doing something that you love and you're mm. passionate and you feel like is meaningful yeah that, that gives me energy the stuff that drives me mad is you know the bureaucracies and the yeah the paperwork yeah, I can do, you know, an hour of that feels like a month of work, you know. Yeah. Do something love with young emerging leaders and help their dreams come true. Man, you can do that. For yeah, and it's good what you say there because I always say that to a lot of people. Um, try and do something you're passionate about or that gives you a purpose, which I think goes back to the people that have got do Chrome or whatever. They haven't got a purpose. And once you lose that, there's, there's nothing worse when you are passionate and you've got a purpose. Wow. You, you know, you can't get any better than that. Can you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things we do with change makers is get into a personal mission statement. You know, what are you dissatisfied in the world about? What are your passions and what gifts do you have to try and make a difference in those two things? So, and uh, it is amazing what, what people can come up with. I mean, so mine really is, so the kind, I, I like connecting people, I like uh, developing people, like, you know, releasing people, uh, and particularly urban people in place. My PhD was in that whole area. Uh, and it's amazing, I think, how complicated urban areas are, but how full of potential they are. Mm. And if we can release um, urban people in place, the world will be a different, a different, place i think for me the dream is is shalom and so i come from a christian background so this idea of shalom is a biblical idea of god people and place being in harmony together mm. and i love i love that and when when people have a sense of that of harmony with with nature in the place and with other people the you know that's a taste of heaven and uh that's what i you know when i see that stuff happen it gives me energy you know it doesn't yeah. save me yeah, um, and uh, and so I can do that. I can just keep doing that. But but there are a whole lot of things I'm not good at. Um, and when I get stuck doing those things, they just drain me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> so so if people do want to get in touch or look what you're up to, then Ash, they it's basically the website seedbedsdog.org. Seedbeds.org. Yeah, yeah, and everything. Everything scans from every all your projects and everything are all on there, aren't they? And they all come from there. Yeah, yeah, lots of those things are there. I mean, it's worth saying that. So, Seabeds is our kind of leadership development, community capacity building work. Um, but we do have the New Biggin Community Trust, which my wife leads, and that's all the work here in Winston Green. Um, and then we have a local church. I'm a minister of that, and Angus, and that's Lodge Road Community Church. So, those three things kind of work together, and. Yeah the real focus on Winston Green um, and I do as part of the church 
Um, but then, yeah, these the kind of leadership development programs where we work with people across the country and across the world, actually. Yeah. Do you actually I, feel... I, 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 go, I go to the Ukraine in April. Oh, my in God. So, uh, <laughs> so that would Russians be interesting. <laughs> Keep an eye on the news. Is that, do you feel like that's, you, you're quite rooted there now, do you think, or do you think you'll move on, yeah. or do you think you'll stay there? No. And, but yeah. that, that, that was our sense of call, actually, that we grounded and rooted in Winston Green and then connected for leadership development around the world. And, yeah, I'd say we've been here seven, just over seven years. Um, I don't want to move again. And a lot of things you put in process now, things like schools and housing and yeah. we've got a really great set up here in this church. You don't want to just start all over again. I, yeah. I like I'm getting too old for that. Ah, I can't believe that. It's quite funny, isn't it? When you originally were in Melbourne, I bet you never thought, I wonder where I'll end up, Winston Green in Birmingham. <laughs> in, uh, <the> UK. <laughs> uh, and I always ask my guests for a bit of advice. It might be the best bit of advice you've ever been given, Ash, or that you give people. Have you got something you can think of? Yeah, I mean, uh, Margaret Mead once said, she's an anthropologist, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Mm. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And uh, that, that, for me, kind of encapsulates what we try and do. It's thoughtful, committed people. My goodness, how far they can go and what change they can see happen. We underestimate it. We certainly underestimate what, what you know, uh, we, the other saying that's kind of connected with that, we can overestimate what we can do in a year, mm. but we can often underestimate what we can do in 10 years. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's true in a neighbourhood like, like Winston Green. You know, the next 10, 15, 20 years, it, it will be amazing what's possible here. But what will happen this year, we've just got to, it's in by inch by inch. Yeah, that's it, small step by small step. And it's like you say, now more than ever, with Zoom, social media, the internet, people can have a voice. You see the politicians and people like that in the news, well, they might decide something, but if a group of people want to start a petition online and, and it starts yep. getting the word spreads, people yep. can move mountains now. You know, it's a, yep. big, a big thing now. It can make a massive difference. I always yep. uh, ask my guests for a favourite as well. So something that's accessible. It can be a book, a film or something like that that people can look at. Have you got, have you got a favourite, Ash, that you can think of? Yeah, um... I, I love Parker Palmer's writing, oh, and right. uh, and he's got a book. So he's a um, a Quaker. So any book by by Parker Palmer is fantastic. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of the book that uh, the best one. Um, my favorite book is Parker Palmer. Yeah. He's a Quaker and a kind of activist. His book is Let Your Life Speak. Oh, and right. uh, I, lo I love it because it, it's about, you know, is the life we are living the life that wants to live in us, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I, it's just one of those books I read probably every year and uh, it just you know, it keeps me fired up. And it help, helps, you know, if someone uh, you know, is kind of a bit confused about what direction they want to go in life, you know, what's giving you life? How can you do more of that? Yeah, and uh, Parker Palmer's book is is beautiful and uh, and just well written and and inspirational. Brilliant. Well, I'll have, I'll have to have a look at that. If people want to get in touch, are you on social media, Ash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter. I think it's Doctor at Doctor Ash Barker. I think I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and 
all that um, jazz. Instagram. <laughs> we've got we've got a YouTube channel and seedbeds and uh, oh, yeah. We're multimedia megastars. Oh, oh yeah, have me. <laughs> but what I'll do, I'll put all those links into the show notes anyway when uh, when the show goes out. So so that's fine. Great. Well, look, uh, when, go on. when does the show go out? Where, It'll probably have, go have... out in about two or three weeks. Fantastic, brilliant. Well, well, look, Ash, I know you're busy, but thanks so much. I'm so glad we connected because. Uh, go on. If you ever want to come down to Winston Green, have a couple with us. We've got Community Cafe, mate. So come, come have something to Definitely. eat. Definitely. A really good pub around the corner. The oh, is it? all right. I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> Especially when the weather gets a bit bad. Yeah, there's no excuse. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that, mate. And, yeah, and come down. Keep, keep doing what you're doing because you're so passionate and energised and you... you you need that. You need that. You need that kind of person when, especially for people that are struggling, it's it's fantastic to see. So, well, all right then, Ash, right. look after yourself and Tech Count. I'll speak to you soon. Cheers, mate. So that's it. Massive thanks again to Ash for joining me today and also to you for listening. Make sure you follow the podcast because over the next few months, there are going to be some more extraordinary interviews just like this one with Ash. Remember on My Way of Thinking uh, podcast is on Facebook. Instagram is my what podcast. And if you want to get in touch or you think you'd be a great guest or you know someone that'd be a great guest, then email me my what podcast at AOL.com. Until next time, God bless and take care. <laughs>